Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Lamentations 1 in the Old Testament. And the message today is titled Introduction to Lamentations. We're only going to cover part of the chapter because we're going to do an overview. I just love doing that. Whenever we start a new book, we were in Romans, now we're in Lamentations. We could be going back thousands of years. We can be going to a different language, a different culture, different customs, so many different things. So when we, I think it's you get a more richer understanding of the Bible when you start putting all these background information into it. So this will set the stage for the next five chapters in the book. And we'll talk about why we're even in it. You know, how does it even affect us today, really some 2,600 years later? Um, as we always do, we started a tradition here just showing God's glory and his Romans 1 intricacies and how he's created nature and the beauty of nature uh, so before we jump into Lamentations, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about the giraffe. So if we can roll the video without sound. There's some odd-looking creatures. Now, think about this. When I start telling you, actually, out of all the animals and plants and stuff, things that I've done, I think this is one of my favorites because they're so intricate. The giraffe can get up to 2,600 pounds. Yeah, it's like a mid-sized vehicle. They be, they're very heavy due to their great size and stature. They can grow up to 18 feet tall. They also have 18-inch prehensile tongues that they used as a hand, hand-like projection to grab things off of the tree, the leaves, etc. They also have prehensile lips. The horses have those too. They're like finger-like in how they operate, very sensitive. Uh, what's probably very remarkable about the giraffe is their necks. Their necks can grow up to eight feet tall, just their necks. And they never need to see a chiropractor. (laughs) Because their necks, unlike our cervical vertebrae, their cervical vertebrae are attached by a ball and socket-like structure. Boy, how life would be so much easier for us if we had that. But God had to design it that way so that there, there can be a smooth movement, and even when they they joust, the males joust, and they knock each other around with their necks and their heads, and again, they don't need to see a chiropractor. They have very strong and redundant muscles and ligaments that are anchored to the hump that you see on their back because their necks are cantilevered. Their necks are a very large part of their body weight. Perhaps the most impressive part about the giraffe is their circulatory system. You could imagine with a neck that long that when they bend down, they could have a blood pooling and a rush, high pressure to the brain. And when they get up, they lift their necks up, they pass out. But God has designed them with a bunch of check valves in their circulatory system, in the vessels that line their neck. He's also provided them with a heart that's about two feet long. It can grow to 25 pounds and could pump blood at the rate of 150 beats per minute. Think about this. The check valves and the the way everything is set up is so when they bring their head down, 
It doesn't cause a, a high-pressure system. As soon as they start to lift their neck up, the body immediately responds, which pumping that blood and getting them up so they don't pass out every time they lift their necks up. Pretty fascinating, isn't it? In addition, they have their, if you look at their legs, it's really not that they're skinny, but their skin and their legs are wrapped extremely tight, sort of like compression stockings when you go to the hospital, right? It keeps all that blood and that pressure off of their legs. In addition, their heads, they're so high up and they're in hot climates, they have uh, a lot of sinus cavities that provide heat dissipation in addition to the vascularized ossicles that they have on the top of their heads. So you see that thermal regulation. One last point. I'm really jazzed about the, about the uh, as you can tell, the giraffe. When they walk, they have a gait where their head and neck move back and forth almost like a metronome or a pendulum, and that helps to set a rhythm for the way they gallop. I liken this to the human body with the the iliotibial band that runs down the outside of our upper portion of our leg. There's a very strong fascia that as we run or walk, it's almost like it conserves energy and it snaps back at part of the gait the closest possible thing to a perpetual motion machine, which conserves energy for the human, and with their gallop, it conserves energy for the giraffe. Now, I always say that Darwin, Charles Darwin, didn't have the benefit of the electron microscope. What he also didn't have the benefit of was the DNA, the coding inside every single living creature where God has designed that. The giraffe wouldn't make it off the ground if it had to do with evolution. They would never get anywhere. They'd be just laying there because of their whole structure of their head and neck. I submit to you it wasn't as a result of chance um, mutations, but it was intelligent design, the giraffe for you. Okay, we do have a lot of animal lovers in this church, so we're going to jump into the overview, back to Lamentations. A few points, and I'll go through these rather quickly. Who, what, where, when, how, it's what I learned in high school when I was doing a book report or some type of presentation. I still follow that. So one out of three, three parts, is the overview. So one is what? What is the book of Lamentations about? Sadly, it's about the 586 BC destruction of Jerusalem, which was in Judah, which was in Israel, which is in the Middle East, right? By the Babylonians, which was an eastern kingdom that rose to power, great power under Nebuchadnezzar. I see this as, and you see these, and this is very germane to the topic, is this undulating besiegements where Nebuchadnezzar tells Judah, submit, and they're like, okay, we'll pay you the tribute money. And then when the Babylonians leave, they expatriate some of the people, they start messing with them, trying to employ the Egyptians sort of as a mercenary team to help them to fight off the Babylonians. So the Babylonians come back, I believe it was three times, By the third time the Babylonians came back, they were furious. And their soldiers came, and they just really destroyed Jerusalem. They were hot off the Battle of Carchemish that took place at 605 B.C., where Nebuchadnezzar and his allied uh, armies finally defeat the Assyrians, who were the power before the Babylonians. Okay, so there's your setting. Who wrote Lamentations? Well, if you have a Septuagint, I have a copy. The preamble tells us that it was the prophet Jeremiah. It goes into great detail about the prophet Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah also, he had a rough ministry. He lamented the death of King Josiah in 2 Chronicles 35. So Jeremiah sees his people at an apex, and then he sees them in a decline because of depravity. Jeremiah has been described as the weeping prophet because of a lot of the tough things he had to deal with. When was it written? Again, the aftermath of the Babylonian siege and destruction. Solomon's temple, remember, if you're in Jerusalem at the time, the temple, you know, the sacrifices, Passover celebration, all these celebrations, these soldiers come in with these sledgehammers and fire, and they just smash everything to pieces. Any gold or precious metals, they take with them back to Babylon. So it had to be a heartbreaking thing to watch, in addition to the bloodshed and expatriation, meaning that they would take the indigenous peoples and expatriate them, send them out to the Babylonian Empire because they were like, well, these people are rebellious. So the, the decision was to weaken them. It was genius in a cruel sort of way. So just look at this from a worldly standpoint. If we can take enough people out, Uh, and leave the place kind of desolate and put our people in, they won't rebel against us anymore. That's the way. There was no Geneva Convention back then. That's the way warfare was. So this is what they do, mass expatriation of the people. And then the next question, why? So I'll, I'll expand that. Pastor Joe, why would you teach such a depressing book? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, right? Number one is we have to teach all of God's Word. And there's lessons in this book. Really good, solid lessons that we can... That's why it's called the living word. Because thousands of years later, we still have an application to our lives, 2020, 2030, whatever era we live in. Number two is, for those of us that don't have perfect lives, to be able to identify with someone famous from the Bible who had a tragedy. So let me just ask you by a show of hands. You're not... It's voluntary, so you don't have to do this. But by a show of hands, how many people here, sitting here this morning have had some type of trial or tragedy occur in the last year. I rest my case. <laughs> so, you know, this is, this is going to minister to a lot of people. Jeremiah had his tragedies. The good people of Jerusalem had theirs. And we have ours. So you can go through a tragedy as a believer and still be loved by God, even though our feelings betray us and make us feel unworthy or abandoned or any of these things. Feelings are not a good indicator of reality and truth. Somehow it's become acceptable to struggle with physical issues in some churches, but be shunned when going through emotional issues. You know, I've had quite a few ladies after giving birth um, coming to me quietly and saying I have postpartum depression. They know I'm not going to judge them because, you know, listen, we're frail. The hormones, you know, males, females, depending on what trauma we go through, the hormones, the neurotransmitters, all these things can be off. We could do a simple uh, study of brain chemicals and five major neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline, uh, acetylcholine, and gamma-aminobutyric acid. And when those levels are off, we have problems. We go through these things, sometimes acute, sometimes chronic. So why would we judge somebody who's going through a trial? You see, we are of a, a trichotomous nature. There's three. You know, God is three in one, and he's kind of made us in his image, even though we're in a fallen state because of our own doing. So if you look at those three, it's very simple. We're born into this world physically, but we're dead spiritually. That's why Jesus says you must be born again of the Spirit. In every person's life, you have to make that transition and trust Jesus 
that he died for your sins, that he's your Lord and Savior. So your spirit now is alive. You don't feel it, but their change happens. The second thing, the second part of our trichotomous nature is the fact that we have uh, physical problems. Every day we're alive, the body dies. There's your happy message for this morning. <laughs> In your 20s, you might not feel it, but when you get to be my age and older, you do start to feel it and get yourself some good surgeons. So you have spirit, you have body, and the third is the mind and the emotions, which also struggles as well. Another aspect of this book is three, warning is love. Warning is love. If we look at any society, we find, and you, you could look at the ancient societies, when they're at the height of their depravity, they start to crumble, because that's what sin does. Sin destroys, whether it's an individual or whether it's, it's a society, a group of people. Jerusalem, inside of Judah, they fast-tracked their declension because of this you know, because of this depravity that started taking place. Now, a little caveat here is this book is not a monolith. I have to laugh, snicker, and certainly enjoy debating anybody who says that the Bible's a fairy tale. It's a historical book. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It gives us uh, applications for today. There's a lot of things. It's not a monolith. It has many different facets to it. So what's going on in this time period? You have people who brought on the destruction themselves, with rebellion and transgression and all this kind of stuff. You also have a separate group of people that were good people, like Jeremiah and other righteous people who still wanted to serve God, even though their nation started to crumble. So it's not a monolith. You have a lot of things going on at the same time. The prophet Jeremiah's struggle is that he warned the people to follow God. And you know what they did? They beat him up. They threw him in a dry well. They tried to kill him. That was his thanks for telling the people, you don't understand, you're going the wrong way. And a lot of prophets had this struggle if the society didn't want to hear them. Last point, or two more points, the Christ in Lamentations. Isaiah 53 said, Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. So Christ is fully God, fully man. But when he was on the earth, it was a sad ministry. I mean, he had joy. He loved to heal the sick, and he loved to you know, eat with people and, and be around people. But he had to pay the ultimate price, the sacrifice of dying for our sins, for us to be saved and go to heaven. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, anybody in here, anybody on the planet, would believe in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. 3.17 says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the Son, the world might be saved. Now, remember, he gave us free will. Well, Pastor Joe, why are there so many things going on in the world? Because of free will. Some people choose to sin. Some people choose to rise to power and do evil things. And some people choose to do good. So humanity's not a monolith either. I'll leave you with this. John 16, 33. Jesus even told us, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And the question is, where is your utopia? Where's your utopia? Now, some people say, well, I'm a certain denomination. I go to church with my parents, whatever. Um, I believe in God. But the question is, are you, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Or are you just part of the Christian culture? Or are you an un- unbeliever completely, right? If your utopia, your, your perfection you want to make on this world and what you do and how you live your life 
you're going to be disappointed. And you certainly won't be able to walk with the Lord at the same time. I love my home. We just bought a, we just moved uh, last year. I love the house. Um, you know, it's, it's me, it's my wife, but I know one day my eternal abode is going to be in heaven. So everything has to be put in the perspective in this life because George Washington, Nero, um, Alexander the Great, I mean, these people, you could go further back in history, where have they been all this time? Well, that's a good question. Where was their heart? Did they know God or did they not? Yeah, they had great achievements while on the earth, but where are they going to spend eternity? Because they're somewhere right now and they're conscious. We must learn, folks, to embrace the downs as well as the ups in life or we will have additional disappointment. You know? We need to understand how to operate in the low points because whether we like it or not, the low points are coming. And there's your happy message for this morning. So let's jump into Lamentations. Now that we have the the backdrop set, the prophet says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper, for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy, and from the daughter of Zion all her splendor has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all of her pleasant things that she had in the days of old when her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her. The adversaries saw her and mocked her at her downfall. So verses 1 through 7, 2 out of 3, is that Jerusalem has fallen. Jerusalem has fallen. So we're switching gears here from Romans. Entirely different book, entirely different message. What we see right off the bat is Jerusalem is personified as a person. This is a city, but it's personified as a person. Understand ancient poetry. This is also known as dirge poetry. Dirge, where it was a lament for the dead. The death of a city, so to speak. Right? It's happened to Babylon. It's happened to some of the great worldly cities that if you actually go and you travel and you walk through the ruins, you can say, I wonder what it was like when this was at its peak. All the people here, I could see the buildings and the splendor and the artwork and the, the coins. So he uses a lot of contrast here. The city literally was leveled to the ground as the inhabitants would not submit to Nebuchadnezzar, even though God, now Nebuchadnezzar was the commander of the Babylonian Empire, even though God told the residents to do that. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Why would God do that? Why would God use Cyrus the Persian to deliver the Jews out of Babylon sometime later? Why wouldn't he just use somebody from his own 
his own clique. He had to expand the mind of the believers, just like our minds have to be expanded too when we read the scripture. What's God saying here? These are my preconceived notions, but can I lay them aside to find the truth? Am I going to eisegete the Bible or am I going to exegete the Bible? Am I going to get out of it what God wants me to get out of it or am I going to read the culture into the scripture like we see a lot uh, today? City described verse 1 as a princess leveled to a widow and a slave, which back then was a contrast, as high as you could go to as low as you could go. And what did she do? She hit the proverbial rock bottom. What does Jesus say about that in Matthew 21, 44, hitting rock bottom? He says, quote, whoever falls on this stone, meaning himself, will be broken. So at times, I know for me, in my 20s, um, I became a Christian, and my, my plan, the Joe DeProsimo plan, wasn't working out. It still left me empty. So in a sense, I, I fell on the, the stone. I fell on Christ in that I, I gave myself to him. But it, it had to come with some change. Sometimes people want to come to God, but they don't want to change anything about their lives. That's going to be a problem because he wants to mold us. He wants to make us better. He wants to make us more in his image. So Jesus said, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whomever it falls will be ground to powder. In other words, the other alternative to res- is to resist God your whole life and then die and face the consequences. Warning is love. And people say, well, Jesus said that? I thought he was all flowery and huggy. He was. But he also wanted to warn us about what would happen when we died. And again, it's our choice which path to take, folks. We all have free will. But when we take the wrong path and we die in that state, we can't say that God didn't tell us. Now, don't get me wrong. We're going to be sinners all our lives. When I die, I will still be a sinner at some point in the next day or few hours before I pass. But the difference is God changes us from the inside, and we start to change and, and, and move more in his direction and less in our own direction. So for those of you that don't know the Lord, don't freak out. Christians aren't perfect. <laughs> you'll, you'll find that out very quickly as you start to get to know them and me. Um, but we, we want to be submitted to the Lord. Verse 3, Jerusalem goes into harsh captivity with no rest, and her persecutors overtake her. And I forgot verse 2. Again, Jerusalem is spoken of as an immoral person who was wanton, who was abandoned, abandoned by all her lovers, okay? And all her friends turned to enemies. Careful when you make friends with the world over God. Verse 4. Everyone is dejected. The city's like a ghost town, and those who are left mourn. It's a little hard to follow because what we find is, but you're going to get the hang of it. It's a learning curve. You're going to see the personification of the city, and then in the next verse you'll see the actual inhabitants, how the people are behaving in light of this tragic situation. So personification, generalities, and then it moves to individual groups and how they're dealing with it. Then it goes back to personification. So we we follow that. He says, no one comes to the set feast. This is sad. With the temple gone and the city destroyed, the feasts were not celebrated anymore. There was, you know, when God set up his feasts, and and people do this today. They do it in Christianity, uh, even in Judaism with the Passover. They miss the point, right? The point is the feasts. Get together, enjoy, eat, fellowship, break bread, bonds. But most of all, is the feasts are a reflection of our relationship with the living God. And some people, interesting, Jews and Christians, do these rote ritual um, 
things that were designed for good, but they, now they leave God out of it. It almost becomes a secular right, which it was never designed to be in the first place. Everything that God asks us to do is so that we would be close to him. Because as humans, we have to, I know for me, you got to remind yourself. If I don't remind myself, and then, you know, a year later something goes wrong, like, ah, oh, I forgot. You know what I'm saying? We forget. But we, you can't forget the important things. Our relationship with God, which is the most important. Verse 5 is the key. The Lord now becomes the source of the affliction because of the multitude of the transgressions or willful sin and willful rebellion. This wasn't an accident. The city had fallen into depravity. Now, before you feel sorry for the city, they committed great atrocities. They committed great atrocities with their children. They started, um, they started on a good foot, and they started to be very influenced by the surrounding ungodly pagan nations. So God really had to kind of remove his protective hand. Now, check out his, even in his judgment and dealing with the city, he sends Jeremiah, and there were other prophets as well, redundancy of prophets, to preach to the people. And Jeremiah is saying to the city, stop resisting Nebuchadnezzar. This is the word of the Lord. If you just submit the first time, it's going to be rough for us but we're going to get over it. It's going to be okay. You've got to trust the Lord with this. You see? So God almost put a force field around them. He protected them, but he was very clear with them. Continue to follow me. Your crops will grow. The weather will be, you know, will be right for the crops. Um, you know, your enemies won't overtake you. And that really did happen. When they started moving away from God and rebelling against him, he basically withdrew. And even in his withdrawal, he said, Babylon is going to be victorious. Now, you, you, folks, if you're not buying this, go into your history books. You'll find it in history books. Actually, some of my information that is supportive and, and I, how I do my studies is secular history. However, history is history. It either happened or it didn't happen. There's either dates and artifacts or there aren't. That's the beauty of history. You can't play with it. It's there. It's, it's truth. So... He said, just Jeremiah saying, listen, this is what the Lord gave me here. Now, what happened was the people were listening to the false prophets. What do you think the false prophets were saying? Eh, keep resisting Nebuchadnezzar. You're fine. You're Jerusalem. You're going to weather it, no problem. You know what's funny? I, I hear that type of preaching in the church today, where, and it's weird preaching, and it's nowhere in the Scripture that if you're truly a believer and you have enough faith, you'll always be well, you'll always be healthy, you'll always be well, everything's going to go great for you. It's a false gospel. It's the prosperity gospel. When you actually start to read the Bible, you realize, well, that's not reality. And these guys were false prosperity preachers, these false prophets, all these years ago. And they were saying, don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. And unfortunately, Jeremiah was right. They were wrong. The Babylonians had come in. I'll tell you this. I, I read a lot of, you know, extra biblical sources. The, the Babylonians found Jeremiah abused, starved, thrown into a dry well. They were kind of amazed that Jeremiah's own people would treat him like that. They actually rescued Jeremiah. You believe that? The pagans. Isn't that weird? When the people, listen, <laughs> everybody has had, if you live long enough, some type of church horror story. And you say, you know what? Secular people treat me better than these people who claim to be Christians. Not, things don't change, right? Human nature doesn't change. 
The goal is to, to be a good example to everyone, including your brothers and sisters. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem made things much more difficult than it needed to be by resisting. You know, some people never know when to quit. God's trying to get their attention. I've done a lot of counseling over the years, and God's trying to get their attention. And sometimes they're, they're trying to go, and God loves them. They're trying to go in a direction that's destructive to them, their children, their family, their loved ones. And God is trying to, but they also, we also, listen, I have free will. I don't have to do this. Tomorrow I could just leave and go live for myself. I have that ability because I have free will. But I could also choose to continue doing this and follow the Lord. We all have choices. Some people never know when to quit. It's very sad. Sometimes we know we should get right with God, but we keep bucking him. Eventually that horse is going to get tamed. <laughs> you, can't, you can't buck God forever. You know, it's funny. When I had come to this epiphany in my mid to late 20s, I actually said to myself, why do I keep running from God? What's wrong with me? I keep doing this in the world. I get, and it just slowly started to change me. And then I started to hear in the word. And I'm like, you know what? I just came up and received Jesus. Then I said, why didn't I do this sooner? So folks, there might be some of you here this morning that you're still, you know, I don't know, I can't read your mind, that you're still pushing against him. You're still kicking against the goads. You're still running from him. Just give in. It's a good thing. I think the biggest fear, and I'll speak uh, from experience is my fear is, well, when he has me, what's he going to do with me? See, uh, you're laughing, you know. These are the wacky things that we think in our flesh when God's trying to grab a hold of our heart and we keep fighting like our way or the world's way is going to be better than him. This is God we're talking about. He's not like a, a, a BFF who became a frenemy. You know what I'm saying? This is, this is God we're speaking about. Let him into your heart. Hebrews 12 tells us, and I, I, I laugh sometimes when I read this chapter, God has a sense of humor, that when he, he tries to discipline us because he loves us, he wants to change us, he wants to make us better, he wants to make our lives better. And sometimes when I feel like I'm getting disciplined, right, God disciplines those he loves, I'm like, well, don't love me so much, you know what I'm saying? I just need you to ease off a little bit. But it's a relationship, right? He's, he's got all the right answers. I'll just say this too. And I found, and it's sad, and I was there for a while, so I could speak from experience. We could do this the easy way or the hard way. Sometimes we choose to do it the hard way. And I found that those who do it the hard way, somewhere deep inside they know that they should change. But on the outward, they're blaming everybody. They're blaming the government. They're blaming their parents. They're blaming their church. They're blaming the family they were brought into. They're blaming their pastor. It's like, when you start going in that direction, you have to say, what's the common denominator? Me, <laughs> right? I'm blaming everybody. Maybe I should look in the mirror. I'll leave you with a caveat here. Um, well, I won't leave you with a caveat, but I'll just say that <laughs> God is a merciful and fair God. God doesn't sit up and sit around in heaven. Again, these are one of the wacky things I thought before I was a believer. He doesn't sit around in heaven thinking, who can I pick on next? You know, who's, who can I put my finger on next? It's not what he does. It's not what he does. It's, it's not his character. But again, I didn't know the scripture. 
now I know him and I've experienced him. And folks, it's amazing that he saved me because I still remember, and I say he's very merciful, that, you know, you ever hear of somebody who's a, a user, like they use people in relationships and then they dump them when they don't need them anymore? A lot of people use God, and I was one of those people. When my life was falling apart, I knew he was there. And I would get angry, and I would say things to him, insolent, shake my fist. It's amazing he saved me. And I look back and go, man, I was nuts. And I wasn't going to heaven because I had no relationship. I just wanted a call. I wanted the lifeline when things were getting rough. I'm just being honest. Transparency from the pulpit. But he is the one who has the wisdom. He has the answers. He has what's best for us. Verse 6, Jerusalem lost, lost its splendor, but understand whatever it had came from God in the first place. And you see these cycles. Let's look at these cycles. This is this city or the, the collection of believers. And the, Now, don't get me wrong. People like Jeremiah and some were just always trying to do the right thing, live a godly life. It's never easy to do that in a sinful world. But then you had the masses, and sometimes I refer to the Christian culture. You know, they just kind of go and, and move with the new trends. But let's look at back in the Old Testament. This was their pattern. They would, to the most extent, God would kind of say, this, these are the rules, this is you know, what we should be doing. And they would obey God, and they would get some prosperity. Things would get better. But then they would look around at their neighbors and see some worldliness in the neighbors, and they're like, well, you know, some sinful things, and the flesh kind of came up, and, and they, they started to follow some of these sinful practices. They started to pull away from God. They started to get prideful by the same blessings that God bestowed upon them. I'll take the blessing. It's funny, the atheists today, and I don't criticize atheists. I always try to tell them and kind of win them to God. The atheist doesn't want the creator, but he likes the earth. He likes the sun. He likes a, a moonlit night. The atheist likes all these things. He wants what the creator, the creation, but he, he wants to do away with the one who made all that. Interesting. So the, these people did that. Um, they distanced themselves from God. They got prideful. In some respects, in the leadership, it led to decadence. Decadence led to, unfortunately, God letting go, some punishment at times, and what that often led to, and not by everybody, was repentance. What is repentance? It means change. Right? Repent and be saved. It just means change. It's a scary word when a pre street preacher's doing it, but it just means change. You know, you walk in your, your way in your life, and you stop, and you consider God's ways. You change. You, you now want to consider going in, in his direction. So they repented. And then... They would get blessed, and some of them went through the cycle again. Pride, decadence, and this, you see this cycle. People kind of can do that too with this cycle, and, and I did that before I was saved. When things let up, <clears throat> I distanced myself from God, had no use for him. Things got bad again, and, you know, it's just, was a, it's just a weird kind of uh, hamster wheel that we can put ourselves on. Verse 7, in the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembered all her pleasant things. It's always a good idea to reevaluate re our lives when we fall into catastrophe. Jerusalem remembered all of her pleasant things. Now, it's not always self-caused, but sometimes it is. The smart person will reevaluate themselves. Even Sun Tzu's The Art of War 
in order to be victorious on the battlefield, you have to know yourself. If you don't know yourself, you set yourself up for failure. If you're single and you go into a relationship, you need to know yourself. And so does the person you're marrying. Because then when you get together and there's two sinners that are confined to a house, their fights start. What are your triggers? What are your weaknesses? What are your, you know, we have to know ourselves, folks. You know, and the more we know the scripture, the more we can reevaluate ourselves and we become healthier mentally, truthfully. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Right? And again, we do sin, even as Christians, but do we actively pursue decadence and then want God to give us stuff all the time at the same time? It's kind of counterproductive, and it's hypocritical. Verse 8, we continue. Jerusalem has sinned grievously, therefore she has become vile. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Now, today, nakedness is an industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Back then, it was shameful to be out in public. So there's a, it's a metaphor. And again, this is why I have to explain this as the pastor, because today we're like, well, everybody's naked today. You know, it's just what we do. Because I wonder where we are on the continuum in the United States. Sex trafficking, prostitution, pornography. I don't know. How long is it going to be before the Lord humbles us as a nation? And then Christians, are we really Christians, right? When we see that things aren't going so well around us, will we fall away from God or will we will push us closer to him? It's a choice every person has to make. Her uncleanness is in her skirt. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction. For the enemy has magnified himself. The adversary has spread his hands over her pleasant things. For she has been the nations, she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, meaning the holy place, uh, the building, which we'll get to. Those whom you commanded not to enter your congregation, all her people sigh, they seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. So the last part, before we close, is three out of three, is the cause of Jerusalem's destruction. She did not consider her destiny. Again, we all make choices in life, and we all need to consider our destiny. If you don't know the Lord, and you're just meandering your way through life, did you ever think of, you know, what could happen if, you know, something happens and you, you lose your life this week? I mean, I don't assume I'm going to be here another few years preaching from this pulpit. I could get run over by a bus. I don't know. We just, life is filled with pitfalls, isn't it? Things happen every day. Do we consider our destiny? Do we consider if we're not on the right path? If we're on the path right now of the world, and we call ourselves Christians, of course, but we're really on a worldly path, and we're not on the path of God, do we consider where that's going to end up when we die, when we die? Right? Jerusalem chose the wrong path. Which, what path will you choose? Choose wisely. Something to really consider. Again, some have be, have, are bothered by the... I find myself over-explaining some of these Old Testament books because some are they're bothered by the consequences for sin because as a society, we become desensitized to it. Right? Many in the Christian culture even lack discernment. You know, they're, they're so... Um, uh, affected by the world negatively, that they, they're, they're not seeing the things that God loves, the God, that God wants, that God wants for our lives. Verse 10, 
Understand this too, the foreigners were barred from the temple service, but so was the average Jewish person, okay? Um, the temple, the, the, the building, it was reserved for the priests and the Levites. Those were the only people who could minister there. Uh, and they, the people must have watched in horror as the pagans came in and just destroyed that building. I mean, it's one thing to watch a, you ever watch a, a building and it's old and you see the, a crane with a wrecking ball just... It only takes a few minutes. The whole building comes down, brick, steel, whatever it is. Destruction, demolition. But imagine a slow, you know, and, and back then they had sledgehammers. You know, the soldiers would come in and they just would smash the, the walls. They would use catapults. And the people must have watched in horror as that building that they would come and they would be around it and they would see the services and the feasts and the worship just get smashed to pieces. And God just, he kind of takes his hand off. And he just lets them do it. And they cart all the pieces of gold and silver and valuable artifacts over to Babylon. Sometimes we have to put ourselves in their position and to see the things that these people were experiencing. Verse 11, Jeremiah took the punishment personally, even though he was obedient. So did Nehemiah. If you read Nehemiah, he said in his prayer, God, we have sinned. We have let you down. That is a real person of God. Not to say to God, don't judge me. Those people, right? Pointing to others. You know, we're all part, we're either part of the solution or we're part of the problem. See, nobody lives their lives in a vacuum. Especially if if we're people of God. As a church, what we're supposed to do is come together and make it better collectively not one person does it or i i don't have any part of this right is this is a the church is a group of people believers coming together to make it right repentant you know ask my wife you know when we go to pray i pray for revival oh lord for revival like the old revivals where people just they don't even, even, they're not even coming to church they're just moved by the spirit of god and and neighborhoods are changed and and you know Pornography is losing money, and prostitution's losing money, and you know decadence is losing money, right? The, the drug dealers are out of business because there's just a revival, and people want Jesus so much they don't care what the world has to offer them. That's exciting, and I pray for revival. And we're seeing little glimpses of it here and there. In closing, Jerusalem took the path of slow declension of slowly pulling away from God, making bedfellows with the rebellious world system. And again, we can talk about many cities today where I actually have a lot of pictures. I love following archaeology. Oh, that was Babylon? Hey, I still see the walls. There's nobody in it. There's animals, you know. There's, there's plants, and the animals have taken over, right? Nobody's in that city. But back in the day, boy, was there splendor. But it hit its height of depravity and decadence, and then it fell. And great was its fall. And Revelation tells us we're going to keep seeing that before the end. God will walk away from where he's not wanted because he respects himself and what he has to offer. Folks, and there's no shame in this, because I took the walk 20-something years ago. If you're on the wrong path, or if maybe you're, you're not on any path, you're just meandering through life, you're questioning, you just walked in here, you saw a cross, and you just came in. You know, and I tell you what, if that's you, and you don't have a relationship with God, I want to encourage you, you walked into this place for a reason. We always have visitors. I don't know who they are. I don't know if you're Christian, not Christian. I don't know your situation. 
But boy, if, if what I'm saying this morning is, is, is scratching an itch, it isn't me. I didn't know you were going to walk in here. It's the Lord. It's his word. So if that's you and you're on that path today, you can choose God before you leave this place. Now to Jeremiah and the good people of the city. They had a tough time emotionally. They had a tough ministry. You know, every so often I read about, and it's horrible to read, suicide is on the rise in the most plentiful country in the world, the United States. So many demographics, suicide, rise. And I'm even seeing, the last one I read about was a young pastor. And my heart ached, you know, young people taking their lives. Just because the United States has a lot of stuff and a lot of opportunities doesn't mean that's going to translate into happiness. You know, folks, if you're a believer, you might be struggling with something for a long time. It could be Lyme disease. It could be fibromyalgia. It could be cancer. It could be uh, loneliness. It could be depression. It could be anything. But you're still hanging tough with the Lord. You know, you just have these circumstances that just keep barraging you like the waves beating on a house that's built and just slamming against it. And you're like, I just need a break. I just want to encourage you. You're not alone. You look around, there's some people, not, we're not saying anything, but the person sitting right next to you might be going through that same thing. And that's why it's so good in a church to have community, for us to get to know each other. If you're new to the church, if you want to stick around, I'll introduce you to people. Because church should be community. It shouldn't be a place that we go. It should be a place that we are. And when we go through those storms in life, number one, it's great to have a relationship with God. It's good to talk to him, to tell him your heart. It's good to know the word, but it's also good to be around like-minded people that could put their hand on your back and just, just not say anything and be there with you. Amen? So if you find yourself in the second group, Let God minister to you. Let the word minister to you because you're not alone. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.